This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Today's episode is sponsored by Stamps.com. Get your free four-week trial at Stamps.com. Just click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter the code BADCHRISTIAN. You are now entering the Bad Christian Podcast. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven. No, <laughs> he reigns. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Lord of all. Awesome. <laughs> Our God is <laughs> bad Christian. He is not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. We're going to have a guest on in just a few minutes. Y'all sit tight. Her name is Peggy, and she's going to talk to us about female sexuality and how we are screwing that up as a culture. So looking forward to that. But what are you guys Literally screwing yeah. it up. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, uh, Joey. Hey, hey, let me ask you, do y'all believe this? I am like on the edge of my seat wanting to share uh, with you guys what happened to a friend of mine. Trustworthy friend. So basically, hmm, trustworthy her, friend sounds like a uh, you know urban legend well, in the making here. Yeah, someone I trust. I'll put it that way. <laughs> her uncle sent to about five people in the family a picture of him with a bandana covering the bottom half of his face, and then a caption saying, "I'm going to kill ISIS." Sounds like a. <laughs> Pretty normal. <laughs> no, I don't understand it. Still, he, Sound, he he sent a picture of his own self with a bandana over his face to people, multiple people in his family, and saying that he was going to go kill ISIS. Yes. So, so kind of a joke. Meaning, I all mean, of them, not just one person. Right. He's going group. to take it down. So check this out. Homeland Security oh my called gosh. that very day, made him meet with two officers downtown the same morning. Um, so basically him and his wife, they were already in the city eating lunch. And so he walked over to a park bench and the mother watched through the window. She was scared to death. And basically they asked him a bunch of questions, told him not to do it. And then they left. Okay. So and that's just unbelievable. Slow, you know, so this is, this is a text. You, we don't have this all is the a te- info here still. Let me ask That's fine. This is a text message mm-hmm. to five personal contacts. This is not Facebook. This is not Twitter. This is not any social media. Mm-hmm. So this is a text message. This is like me sending to you guys, Devin and Scott. Yeah. Well, so. And then I. It was a joke though, fundamentally. Like what was the. I, yeah, it was a joke. It was a joke. Now. Now the uh, my friend basically said that it was over the top, and she was even like, "Good God, you know, like that's a pretty intense picture." But she was like, "Oh, that's just my uncle. My <laughs> uncle does like, crazy uncle stuff like that." Around. So you're saying that the who Homeland Security NSA who was it? Homeland Security Homeland yeah. So Homeland Security is monitoring text communications enough to catch a normal, regular dude in the South that's, I imagine, on no watch lists of any kind or has any ties to anything. But right, right. Simply I, and based I asked, on the image and ISIS being in a text message between family members, we're saying yes. that some algorithm picked that up. Yeah, this is a regular dude, no criminal record, just like one of us. That's pretty insane. Just, I mean, just I'm not 100% going to believe it based on the urban possibility of an urban legend type thing but i I basically believe you i think it's believable is what yeah. i'm saying i mean that you know i was uh toby 
used to warn me a long, you know, probably about a year and a half ago, I would text really inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Really over the top. <laughs> wait, wait. So Joe, Joey immediately went, "Oh shit, that stuff I said." Yeah. <laughs> no. uh, you immediately, you immediately went to, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble." No, not. <laughs> what I thought was is you used to tell me that, and I thought it sounded so outlandish that you were kidding. And I remember finally you said it to me again, and. I was like, you're not kidding, are you? And you're like, no, I'm not kidding. Don't send stuff like that because you just have no idea if that sort of thing can leak. And at that point, I really, you know, I really started thinking about it. And I was like, yeah, Toby's right. I mean, he's certainly right. But then this even validates it more. Now, I mean, the stu- I'm, I'm not this, all about like, um, I'm just not about conspiracy theories and stuff like that. But I mean, that that's that not is a, what the Patriot, yeah, the Patriot Act and that stuff meant that that we gave away some of our. I, it's not exactly our rights of privacy. We still have those, but to an extent, right. if something happens that is supposedly a, a threat to American soil or anything like that, American citizens, then they can investigate you and do that. And it's like we've always been saying. We've been saying this for years. We have no privacy. Yeah, I mean, I believe it because I just I think there's some algorithm that if you say ISIS and kill mm-hmm. and something like that, it that that pings, and then they went, oh, we got to go see. Especially now because everybody's so scared to death. That, that's what I'm saying. It's so scary that terrorists are ever are everywhere and it's going to be so bad and all this stuff. But that's here's why it's always really frustrating to me. And this is why anybody that's like for big government or anything, TSA doesn't stop terrorism. The You hear about this story where it's just some dude joking around and they spend all time and effort and money finding this guy. Oh, yeah. But they can't catch the real terrorists? Mm-hmm. Or something, you know what I mean? Like, like well, maybe I mean, they it, do. I, maybe this is part of how they do. I mean, there's some amount that you do want you, the right. government trying to do. I mean, you want them to be. Able I mean, we to haven't had we haven't had a major emails though. In a way, like in general, you hope that the the National Security Administration and Homeland Security is is intercepting some communications from ISIS members and recruitments and stuff. Right? I mean, we want some of that. Right. But the yeah. notion that they're monitoring our text message and then intimidate you into having to come sit on a park bench in a city and give you a talking to is really that's freaky. like movie material, yeah, man. That's what's crazy. Weird is they, about and my it is question, you could they could have that guy should have. I mean, I understand they're looking for terrorists. I'm not one. So when they figure out who I am and then have me come down to a park bench, my instinct here this is not what I would do, but this is what I think one ought to do. And they intimidate him and say, "Don't do that again." I would like. For somebody to say, fuck you, I will too. I'll do whatever the fuck I want to do. I'm not a terrorist. And then go back home and continue texting as you want to do. That's what I would yeah. think would be what should happen there. You know what well, I mean? Like well, the fact and, that they, and to further you your point. To death. Well, there's no well, due process Matt's- there. There's no anything. You're not you're not a criminal. You didn't do anything wrong. Do you want really want to live in a society where whatever they advise how you communicate and joke is up to them to tell you when you're not even Matt. associated with anything? No, I don't, but we live in that society. Yeah, well, I know. That's what I'm saying. If that's what that is. In fact, I, I guarantee you most people, my, I, I'd love to know a poll right now, just even people listening go, I'm okay with that. He said ISIS. That, even you said that. Well, some right? government stuff. Da, 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 but anytime you say, well, some, then it means they will go. They will cross the line mm-hmm. and, into all of our privacy and all of our rights. And that's just that. So as soon as you give some, right. It, it, then that's it, and that's what well, I'm saying. Like T- TSA, all that stuff, it just doesn't matter. It's, it's. I'm so frustrated. With the government today. I'm out here doing True Man, and I have to leave Philadelphia to drive to Pittsburgh, and it's a toll road. Mm, so can I was we like, talk I, about I, that? I, I, I like was like, I wanted. 
I wanted to take, I wanted to avoid tolls, which I can do on my Google Maps, but it was an extra two hours of driving. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. So my toll today was $35. Now, guess what else there is? There's only toll plazas. So mm-hmm. they get to choose exactly where I go to get my coffee or my gas, what the prices are of that. And of course, they're more expensive because, well, you know, the, the, and I'm just like, so mm-hmm. you're telling me I'm paying, I'm paying my taxes paying for this road. Then I'm paying a toll for the road. Then I have to pay the exorbitant uh, or the the higher price of gas. And I checked to see before I got on just to see. Uh, I had to. It was like twenty something cents more, mm-hmm. I think, than what I had paid before. And all the way. And I'm like, damn it. I mean, I don't get any say in this, and I'm still doing stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm paying out the butthole. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me let me let me talk. Let's talk about that a little bit. That you know what should be really upsetting to you, really, if you if you're upset about a toll. I'm telling you, you should be just devastatedly upset about what, how the government intends to tax and take away money from you for the what you're doing. Let's say True Man, for instance, where you're out there hustling, right. trying to create something, provide services and goods to contribute to the economy and grow a thing, which is how the economy works, and how much the government is, is going to take out of your pocket from every dollar you earn doing this and you're going to be taxed about the roads and the stuff along the way that is the part that's damn it that's, i wish i was a preacher right well so so we get hit, hit hard with taxes in that yeah exactly but we get hit pretty hard with taxes especially the, what we do here is 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 terrifying and terrible the amount of taxes the government tries to and does wind up getting from small when i say small business i mean everybody thinks small businesses or business people or b- industry and business these are the people that should be paying all the taxes well it's it's incredible incredibly rough and there's no breaks for people out there who are doing the hard work overcoming the inertia to get out there and make a business and have an employee and do these very small business things to try to make what other people you know not a a big income at all and that gets lumped into the big category and the rich category which by the way the rich people (laughs) i'm sorry to tell everybody this this is a very unpopular notion First of all, the rich people do pay all the taxes. Everybody likes to think the rich people get out of paying taxes. The rich people pay almost all of the taxes that are paid. Do y'all know that? Yeah. I mean, have you yes, heard I that? I mean, that. you know, you hear the you hear it from some one percenter thing, but yeah, like the the top one percent. I mean, I look, I don't want to pay any more taxes, but the truth is, I don't wind up paying that much. But it's still very difficult to get out of the ones and try to figure out the ones that we do have, and they feel pretty oppressive and a lot of barrier to even start a small business. I can't even imagine. I feel even worse for the rich people, to be honest. Not bad. I don't feel bad for poor people. I feel bad for rich people and how much taxes they have to pay. <laughs> I do. <laughs> That's definitely an unpopular decision. Okay. Well, let I mean, me just, I'll tell you a couple numbers. I just pulled up a website. It could be wrong, but it should you be. You still this at least be. feel kind of bad for the homeless people and poor people, right? <laughs> not not based on their tax burden, if that's what, which oh, is the only thing okay. I'm talking about. I feel bad for poor people for a different reason, but not because the the taxes and (laughs) government programs that help them. Not that part. I don't feel bad for the top 1% of people, according to this website, at least pay 24% of all taxes. Top what percent? One. The top 1% pay 25% of all taxes. The bottom 40%, which would probably be just around where we are. We're probably, who knows? I'm just going to guess. I'm 50 percentile of earners in the country. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. But the bottom 40% pay 4% of all taxes, federal taxes. So basically none. Anybody in the bottom wow. 40% pay basically. Now, I know when they had to write a check for three or four grand to the IRS, that feels like a lot, but it's not even a drop in the bucket. And in fact, if I'm going to add these up real quick, the bottom, 
the top 20%, the top 25% pay 80-something percent of all taxes that are paid. Let that sink in Good a second. God. So everybody, I know it's easy for all us poor people out here struggling to say, tax the rich more, or give us breaks or whatever. We're in the middle, and I still feel like the taxes are oppressive. So the point here isn't we, we, they've got us all fighting about infight. And Toby, you've said this before. The government has us all doing infighting against each other in order to try. Basically, the government wins both ways. They just let us fight about who right. wants to do what or do what. But really, we're just ceding more power and control and money to the government the whole time. Raise the taxes on them. Good. Well, to do what? Give it to the government? To do what with? This, it's, a, it's a racket. I'm, I'll give you another example if, if the court will allow it here. Because my Airbnb... I want to hear it. The, my Airbnb drives me crazy. All right. So, Airbnb is a company, and they have provided this service to me. It's basically a whole market so that my external garage can be uh, rented out. So, uh they all the demand and the supply come for them, and their app and its development is insane. I don't know if you've ever used it, but it's just like billions of dollars poured into this user right. experience and the data. And literally, hundreds of people are looking at my property for every day, deciding if they want to do. It. I don't have to advertise. I don't have to do anything. I'm basically running something similar to a hotel, except for all the customers and clients and everything is built into the platform that Airbnb created. And they people see it and they book it, and it's just easy and it's brilliant. And they make me so much money. I mean, I can get $100 a night for this place in the back of my house. And it, all, all I do is sign up for the app, which is free, and it comes to me. Now, Airbnb has done all this work, and it's unbelievable. And I just c- could not give them more credit for being able to create this market that helps me and helps the people that stay with me. Very simple. Uh, but it's, it's brilliant. Now, problem is Airbnb, of course, for doing all that work, needs to take a big chunk. They need to take a big fee. You know, because, and I think they deserve it. So, what do you think their fee is that they take out of the money that I collect? Do you, would, would anybody want to guess? My 10, guess, 20%? My guess is five. Okay. 10, 20%, even 5%. Airbnb takes 3%. Wow. They only take 3%, Damn. and they've done this, built this infrastructure. This beautiful, wonderful, multi-billion dollar economy that I tap into and it benefits. It causes production in the economy. It causes travel. It causes people to go out. It causes me to do renovations on my house. It's stimulating the economy. It's great. They take 3% for that. Okay. Now, after... After I collect that money, the re- the ninety seven percent that I got, you about to make me mad. You about to make me <laughs> how, mad. How much? How many? Per- how much percent does the federal government then say they want of that? You know, because I mean, oh, you God. know, the, you know, I guess the people had to drive on roads to get to my Airbnb, right? So the, the right. government needs a take. Also, understandable. We should have a federal budget. Airbnb has created directly all these things. The federal government is now. Saying, oh, yeah, yeah, but we're the federal government, so we didn't really do anything, but we need a piece, too. You know what their piece is? 15%? 30%. They want 30%. Oh, That's after self-employment tax plus uh, income tax. is 18 <laughs> each or so, basically. And so they want about 30%. They want 10 times as much as Airbnb, who directly created it, maintains it, caused it, invented it, su- supports it, does everything. And and all you can say, all anybody ever says to me is, "Well, you you know, like roads and stuff, though, you know." Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but even let's just think about the roads and stuff a second. There, the roads are two percent of the federal budget. Two percent. Okay, where's the rest of the money go? I mean, I understand that, but I'd be glad to pay for my share of the roads. Oh, let me tell you something else. By the way, the roads aren't even 
mostly paid for. First of all, the roads are predominantly paid for by users of the roads. And that is, in fact, Toby, the taxes you paid on the gas that were overpriced and the tolls. Yep. That pays for the majority of roads. And it's almost all state <sighs> and local governments that all do right. it anyway. So, again, I ask you, why Airbnb gets 3% and the government wants 30% of money that we I, I built that that apartment two days a weekend and put all my personal capital into it for a year to and get there, and then for, they just, and they not, just stood, stay, stand not, back and want thirty percent because people that are poorer for, than me or whoever says, yeah, but you know, tax these business people, me, like that, right? And that's right. not even as bad as the rich people who get really screwed and all the money that doesn't go that. I'm telling you, I'm not saying I'm not this super hyper capitalist person or anything like that. I understand the other arguments. I'm just telling you, the government is so inefficient with that money that it's it's. I'm not saying trickle down economics would solve everything and let the rich people have more, but the money that goes into the government's hands is not being used well for production in the economy. Period, or wages, or anything else. It's not good. Well, make matters worse. They also don't even keep a balanced budget, and in addition to that. What the government does is you know bad Joey's quality. gonna be pissed about a budget. It's bad <laughs> Joey quality. Get mad about budget. <laughs> I mean, think about the U.S. Postal Service in comparison to FedEx. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, let me let me interject there real quick, right. and let me tell you that a good way to handle that is stamps.com. So I just had to send in a check for seven thousand dollars to the government recently for something, and I use stamps.com to send in my envelope with the cashier's check made out to you know. The Department of the Treasury. Anyway, I use stamps.com because stamps.com is the best way. You can avoid that post office by using stamps.com. You'll be able to create your stamps account in minutes online with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. You can click, print, and mail, and you're done. That's it. So unlike the post office, stamps.com never closes. Uh, you can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24-7. Totally flexible. It's great. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Office right to your fingertips. You can Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. It's very, very easy. I highly recommend to anybody that ever mails anything, you should do it. Instead of going to buy a book of stamps and then losing it and you spent $8, you already wasted that money there. You only used two of the stamps and then lost the rest of the book. Get stamps.com. Be efficient. And right now, you too can enjoy Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter Bad Christian. That's Stamps.com and enter Bad Christian. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. And that, that, that's a prime example of a company because of the, the – here's the thing. We live in such an amazing uh, country in the world – it's such an amazing time that you can start business and create business, but then there's still so much red tape. But like stamps.com is an exact cop uh, is an exact example of what we're talking about. They improved on the post office. The post office is running by the you know, and then somebody, a smart person, goes, "Hey, what if we did this, this, and this, and made it easier for the consumer?" In almost every situation, I'm, of course, there's outliers, and of course, there's things that are negative about capitalism. Of course, there are, mm-hmm. uh, but. In almost every situation, it always ends up being better. For example, if you said the government will no longer do roads and the top five companies can compete to do it, which they still use local, they still use you know companies and businesses, Mm -hmm. um, but the government would not be able to bid or use your money on that, then they would actually compete and be better. But you have stuff like you know like aeronautics and stuff like that. 
uh, where it's, they spend so much money on tiny little things when it's the government because they have to because this is the way the government is run so that all of our taxes are just going all these different places that you don't even know about, right? And that's just that. Well, you bring and up a good point with the the expensive nuts and bolts and all that. But those are all people ripping off the government. So those are the bad companies. But let me tell you, bad companies and monopolies are created by the government. It's it, the government has this money doling right. it out, and that's going to attract the shithead companies that are the bad ones. The real bad ones are the big subsidy companies with lobby and uh, Blackwater, and there's a bunch of evil companies out there, and they're the ones that deal with the government, not the ones that compete in right. the free, mar- free market. I mean, there's some, of course, but you know, most all businesses in, are doing everything they can to struggle and survive, pay taxes, pay their wages, and make it. They're not out there. It's not like we're all, everybody's out there just making money d- dumping chemical sewage, and we need to stop them. Like that's not that's not what businesses right. are doing. They're trying to survive, pay their taxes and their laborers, and move on. And it's 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 it can be really frustrating, and it, and it's so inefficient. Like, uh, did y'all hear about the um? Here's a good example. Did y'all hear about the companies that helped out during the hurricane in the in in Harvey in Houston? Did you hear about that? Yes. Uh-uh. Okay. Yeah, so here's yeah. another thought experiment. Airbnb again. I love the company. They're great. They just turned their app into a mode, which they spent money to develop and fix and whatever that would allow people to take in hurricane victims without and still go through their secure process, but without money changing hands. So it's somebody that lives in North Texas could say, "Oh, I'll I'll do hurricane relief," and people that use Airbnb could sign up and just go and have relief. Cost nobody well, yeah. anything, but except for Airbnb did it, and it was a service. Okay. Also, JetBlue made their flights. Um, some other airlines uh, algorithms jacked up their flights, but JetBlue made their flights like hundred and something dollars fixed as much as they could to make that cheap and U-Haul awesome. who is inevitably some big evil company I'm sure made, made, gave a bunch of people as many as they could 30 day free storage all over Texas okay now let's just imagine for a second for an experiment that we needed to relocate 10,000 people and store uh, you know 40,000 cubic feet of storage stuff and fly out 5,000 people uh, or get them evacuated from Houston. And we, who do we need to do it? The government and FEMA. Okay. What do you think it would cost FEMA to accomplish that with your tax dollars? Just think about that. Think about tens of thousands of people and miles and dollars and cubic footage and pull, bringing people in and out. We need the government right. to go down there and help people in Houston. Right. Well, kind of. I mean, of course we need their help, but that's the worst way to help. The best way to help is these awesome companies doing their part, and it works better, and it doesn't cost the taxpayers billions of dollars, which that would cost hundreds of millions of dollars to do what those three companies did easily with the help of people yeah, just yeah. doing it. So, don't you think? A, don't you think a, a couple of companies that are designed to help people in crisis would work better than FEMA? The, yes. I, all I've ever heard was how bad FEMA is. Yeah, it's, like, it's terrible. Like, I know. I know companies. My dad says, "Oh, this guy, he has this contract with FEMA where he just and he just makes this guy's just a millionaire because he supplies FEMA with stuff because it's a it's right. a monopoly." It's, right. it's a, I don't think this. I mean, I don't think this is a collusion or anything. It's just the way that shit goes. Anyway. You know. And then they want to send on. Uh, then they want to look in on Joey's dick pics he sends. That's right. Uh, how much do you think? It, how much do you think an in, uh, Homeland Security agent costs if you wanted to rent one to oh, monitor God. somebody's texts, contact them, oh, meet them Lord. in public, and then use their skill to deter them from ever sending a joke text message again? How much do you think that would cost if you wanted to privately hire a Homeland Security agents to do that using their technology? Well, you paid for it anyway, just with your taxes. It costs thousands and thousands of your tax dollars to shake that guy down today. Drives me crazy, and we all pay for it. That's why, though, too, uh, it's I mean, limiting I, our freedom. I mean, I'm, I, you know, it, isn't a rich pastor probably the best 
job you could do tax wise yep. and yep. money wise then? No questions like, asked, I mean, no seriously. taxes taken. You got it. <laughs> like like is, is that true? Am I am I way no, off like way a off. super uh, a super rich, let's say a guy that won't let people in his church during a hurricane mm-hmm. or something. I don't know who. I'm, I'm just. This is <laughs> right, hypothetical. Right. This is just hypothetical. You haul like good. Had church like, bad. Got maybe it. maybe there's a guy that has a sixteen thousand square foot house. I don't know if that's even real or not. Probably not, right? But if that in that guy mm-hmm. in that job is that better than even being like a CEO of GE or or Ford or something? Like he might not make quite that much money, but tax wise, I'm just talking about just taxes. Yes, it, it probably really works out the best of any yes. any yes anything. Yeah, well, think about yes, it. it sure. In fact, that's church and that loophole tax loophole for sci- the Church of Scientology and every other cult in the out there is a again incidentally, accidentally, no conspiracy, but government created monopoly. I mean, not monopoly, but it's yeah. a government created place of rent seeking, bad income man. You know, that's that's the bad stuff comes in because it's protected. There's no questions asked and there's no taxes taken. So anybody that's trying to get money has a 30% head start or 50% head start on other companies anyway because the government's not going to come knocking, asking questions, regulating, trying to collect taxes. So, of course, bad people are going to go to everywhere where the government does intervene. I hope, And all we keep doing is voting more and more politicians on one side or another to have more and more power. So what do you think they're going to do with it? It's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. Like I, I, I really do feel like government is just so already <laughs> overwhelming. It's already just overwhelming, Oppressive. and yeah, I yeah, can't free, and freedom limiting is a whole other issue there that we started on. I mean, I mean, j- to me, just the 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 fundamental fact that we don't have a balanced budget. I, I just that right there makes me pause and think. This is that's the most frustrating thing ever, especially when. You know, if you owe the government money, I mean, you can get in big, big trouble. Where oh, yeah. if it's right. the, if it's the other guns. way around, they do you know that how with hard, guns and cages? Do you know how hard it was for me to get money that the government owed me? I mean, you couldn't talk to a human. I mean, yeah. you had to talk to five different people, fill out all this paperwork, and it's because the government owed me money. Yeah. But if it's the other way around, it's just don't. I cannot. But I, I just don't understand why a president. <laughs> wouldn't run for office and say we're going to try to balance the budget because they can't get it it's, done anyway i, mean, I know but it's they're working saying, it's funny it's, it's funny we were talking about this because i had this idea today i was like you know what what if you could really convince just the 10 smartest people like the best finance guy like but not not like it, government influenced or whatever like I, it i know it wouldn't work this easy but like what if you really could just the the most you know somebody like an elon musk that's a forward thinker uh, uh i really have been Listening to a lot of uh, Eric Weinstein. Yeah, he's great. Uh, he's just amazing. He's Golly, he was on Rogan, and then I was listening to him on Sam Harris. Just, but I like if you actually could say, what if we could have these guys, and they they just they all they got to do is four years, or or if you know if they, if they need a little bit more time, okay. But like we we are uh, now subjugated, I guess maybe is the right word too. Well, this is the way it's got to be, and a guy only has eight years, and you know he has to be born in this country, which I, I understand. Uh, you know, we like that patriotism and that idea and stuff, but I, I just, I feel like some of our rules are so outdated that we aren't. I mean, people are talking about changing gun laws and stuff like that. What about the change the damn government? Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. it's just unbelievable. Yeah. If you, I mean, seriously, technology should be improving 
faster so that gun control isn't even a political issue. Mm-hmm. It's just a technology issue. Yeah, it, it, it is a technology issue. There could be some way where if if the sensor picks up that there's more than a hundred people in an area, the gun won't fire or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, or you know, I, I know I'm I'm I don't know how all the logistics, but it just is frustrating to me that we turn to the government and go, well, the government has to make these laws. That, yeah, as that's the it, biggest like, lie. Just that think we about need gun them control. To solve our problems for us. That's ceding right. control and freedom and power and money to people that are only going to do bad with it. We need smart people that are problem solvers, like you said, not charlatans who grandstand and campaign for constantly. Right. That's, that's nonsense. That's so, bad, so bad that, that, that's what, that, yeah, that's what, that's what just uh, boggles my mind is like, even take an issue of gun control. Uh, and, and you know what? Uh, Eric Weinstein said this and it really did. I think one of our biggest problems now, we are so polarized that we can't have a, a long, short position. Mm-hmm. Meaning like, for example, all of us agree that everybody needs some health care, right? Like, like mm-hmm. how, how every, everybody I feel like in America de- deserves or needs or should get some health care. I even believe that for me, because I think that would actually help, you know, uh, my, my pocketbook too. If everybody had some health care, they might, you know, preventative maintenance, whatever it might be, all kinds of things. Right. But that I, I also have a, a shorter one that that's maybe the shorter one. The bigger one too is how do we fund that? How is that paid for? And it's already terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I go to the doctor, I, I went to the dentist right before I left for true man, had no clue of what it was going to cost. When have you ever walked into Walmart right, and bought something like, thing. well, I, I, when I get there, I guess I'll see how much it is. Yep. Insurance companies to, are another example of bad profiteering, you know, bad companies right. that are evil, and they're only in place because of government regulation. They're not fixed 100%. because of it. They're caused because of it. And there's more nuance to it than that. But don't forget that after all that federal tax, the government still, I mean, I still pay a shitload of property tax on my house. Uh, sales tax is about 10% where I am. I know that's not all federal. Uh, you pay a lot in gas, pay it on the uh, the car tabs. Shouldn't that pay for the roads? Uh, right. You know, you do all this, you pay state income tax, and then you pay extra tax on liquor, and they want to charge you extra tax on soda and all that stuff. And then you're going to try to save money for your whole life. And then when you die, the government wants half of what you got left before you give it to your kids. Fuck them. <laughs> right. It is insane. I mean, that's just, it's just oh, not God. cool. It's oppressive. It's just not cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's the thing, too. If we keep looking to the government, it's only going to get worse. Yeah, they the like only thing they can do is throw more money at stuff invisibly or visibly, and you don't even know. And that's just crazy. So, you know what's really crazy, Joey? We're talking about conspiracy theories a little bit. And I know you're a big 9-11 conspiracy theorist. But the one that does, I, I, I haven't heard a good explanation for it, but... What was the guy that um, the day before nine eleven he went up and said we were missing two trillion dollars or something like that? Do you remember that part of the the uh, conspiracy, Joey, for nine uh-huh. eleven? I've never heard. So of that the one. day before nine eleven happened, uh, what is his name? I can't remember off the top of my head. I, somebody will text us and let us know. But uh, a high up uh, Republican official, I think, went up and said that they somehow some money was missing and they were going to try and get to the bottom or or whatever, and then. The big conspiracy is that, you know, the next day 9-11 happened and the exact spot, it was the accounting spot in the Pentagon where the plane hit and it destroyed all that paperwork and stuff. And then, of course, everybody forgot that because we were going through the worst, you know, thing we'd been through almost um, as far as a terrorist attack. So, I don't know. You should read up on that and, and find out. I I, pro- I still probably believe it's some coincidence or I don't know exactly, but that's a big one that they say, you know, he said we're missing I think it was two trillion. Maybe it was two billion. I believe it was two trillion. 
but they just didn't even know where it was. <laughs> and that's our government. Now let me lose two trillion dollars. See if see if you see me walking around and getting reelected. <laughs> yeah. Now they'd certainly benefit from us being distracted and polarized, which is very disturbing because it's not good. We sound anybody. like just. Uh, I mean, we really sound. Uh, it's really funny. As, when you're young, you're like this, and then when you get older, you sound like an old man that complains about taxes. You know yep, what I mean? Like right. you don't care. You want to help everybody, and then when you when it starts coming into your pocket. When the government's hand gets in your pocket, it is hard to not to go, okay, it's all good. Last year, Solid State Records ran a vinyl sale called 13 Days of Halloween, and it went so well that they're running it back for a second year. 13 Days of Halloween Part 2, House of Wax. Ooh, spooky. This is how it works. Each of the 13 weekdays leading up to Halloween, one of the Solid State vinyl releases is given away on social media. It's different every day. Sometimes on Facebook, sometimes on Twitter, and so on. One winner is chosen each day, but for everyone else who didn't win, that vinyl is 50% off until midnight that night. The only difference this year is that we are getting Tooth & Nail Records involved with it, too. Same deal. Every day, one Tooth & Nail release will be given away to one winner, then 50% off in the Tooth & Nail store for everyone else. So keep an eye on all the Tooth & Nail and Solid State Records uh, social media accounts to find out how you can win some vinyl. And be sure to head over to toothandnailrecords.merchnow.com and solidstate.merchnow.com to get some great vinyl on the cheap. Peggy, we're excited to talk to you. We had like, um, gosh, I think there was three people that sent me your video within, I don't know, three or four days. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll watch the daggum thing. <laughs> and, and I watched it, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, here... So just just some context. I'm from the South, Bible Belt, and the three of us. Well, the three of us were all from the South. Collectively, we have six daughters. And I thought to myself, I've got to start thinking differently. And here's a starting point: listening to this woman, Peggy. Can you, uh, before we even move on, can you give our listeners like a snapshot of your TED talks because it was huh. awesome. Oh gosh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I. I it came from my book, which was called Girls and Sex, and I was um, really looking in that book at the disconnect between the ways that girls learn that their role is to be desirable and the um, ways that we don't teach them to understand their own desires and wants and needs and limits and the ways that that um, uh, harms them in their personal relationships lifelong. Well, that's certainly the case. I mean, like, uh, it's it's one of those things that's part, man. I don't I don't know how this even comes across, but it's one of those things that's like in our culture. And I'd like to avoid using the word patriarchy is what I'm trying to avoid, but it's coming up. It's, it's there's things in our culture that you don't even realize are there because it's just the water you're swimming in. So until your eyes are open to the how the general culture that we're swimming in contributes to these really negative and bad and destructive outcomes in the way that women see themselves their sexuality and their body until your eyes are open to it i mean all i can say is that you don't even think about it so that's the weird the yeah. weirdest part about it i mean here here's a perfect example peggy my mom who i love dearly she was hanging out with my daughter who was about 8 years old at the time my daughter is just being a silly girl, dancing around the house, singing, and then she does a somersault, and her shirt basically flips down, and you know, you see from her waist up. And my mom's reaction was like, "Gwenny, no, no, no!" Like all of a sudden, my daughter was 
I hate saying this because it makes my mom sound so horrible, but it's just her natural instinct. My daughter was shamed. Right. Like she was basically shamed for revealing her belly button and her breasts that are non-existent. So if she, <laughs> if if she's being taught that at the age of eight, I mean, it really made me think because I am the type of of guy. I, I was just raised this way to where if. Uh, you know, in the 11th grade, if my daughter's walking to school and she's got a really tight shirt on, my inclination would be, you, you can't wear that. And it seems like I'm, well, I'll ask you, what message are we sending to a girl who is wearing a uh, very stylish shirt to high school? It's tight fitting. Let's say she has very large breasts and, and it, it's going to look tight regardless. And a father says, oh, I don't know. You need to be careful wearing that. What, what kind of mess? Because a lot of people would say, no, that's a positive message. You don't want people thinking that she's dressing that way to turn guys on. Right. It's so complicated and it's one of the most common things that parents I wrestle with it as a parent you know I'm a parent of a teenage girl and I wrestle with it and I think that you know it's shaming the girl for her body is is not the way to go with that and the idea um that you're distracting boys um reinforces the idea that you're kind of asking for it you know if you and that that boys don't have to be responsible for their own behaviors. So what I like to do is to try to shift that conversation with a girl. I mean, you're trying to walk this line between living in the world that we live in, right? On one hand, which is a world that that can be, you know, dangerous for a young woman and also giving her sort of confidence and um, having a, a sense of her own bodily integrity and sexual agency and not shaming them. So you know, I talk a lot to girls about the, how the culture, what's confusing for them is that the culture sells them the idea of self-objectification as a form of self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, when you see Kim Kardashian or you see Miley Cyrus or you see these artists, that you know, they say they're expressing their sexuality, but they're all expressing it in this very narrow commercialized idea of looking sexy rather than feeling and understanding in their bodies. And we know so much that self-objectification for girls um, undermines their self-esteem. You know, it creates fertile ground for depression, for eating disorders, for um, reduced sexual satisfaction, for all of these things. So rather than focusing on, you know, you're distracting the boys, I like to try to help girls critique the reasons why they might be being sold this message and how that might be damaging to them and yeah, let yeah. them make their choices from that. Yeah. Peggy, and- where did, where did this idea come from? Like, like using Joey's example of his mother talking to his daughter, like what, what was instilled in Joey's mom, Barbara to make her do that? You know, you know, like what, what, where, where, where did this idea come from? Of, hey, do you have uh, to you say your name, you man? Reveal- do you have to say your name? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just but, kidding. Uh, Bar- Barbara's a great lady. But uh, that's what I'm saying. Like, she thought she was doing the right thing. She was trying right. to protect your daughter. Where, where does that come from? Well, you know, I think that we, we have this idea that if we somehow, as women, dress right or behave in a certain way or do a certain thing, that we'll be safe. But, you know, down that road, ultimately you're wearing a burqa and mm-hmm. don't even know if you're, and you're certainly not safe then. Right. You, so, are you less safe? Honestly, right? Like wouldn't yeah. the data suggest that, that women in those cultures are, are less safe or, or especially dangerous for women of our culture to do what we're free to do when they go there, they're even in more danger right. too. 
Yeah. So it's not, that's not a guarantee. At the same time, you know, that doesn't mean that you're going to wear a bathing suit to school, you know, so it's, it's, I think that we're walking a line that is often, and girls are walking a line that's so contradictory and so difficult for them to maneuver. So, you know, when, when I've had this conversation with my daughter about a girl that she know, you know, knew who, who was dressing pretty provocatively, um, you know, I'd say, look, it's not right. It's not fair. You know, I don't want to shame her in any way. At the same time, I know this girl is really smart, really talented, a really good friend. And again, not fair, not right. But I worry that it seems like what she's saying is that she wants people to judge her by her body first. And that concerns me for her. So how do you talk to, how do you talk to, for instance, your teenage daughter or something I like just, that? I say that I just, I, what I just said, mm-hmm. I have said my daughter. Mm-hmm. So Peggy, that, that was, that was key. So you told, you want to help girls for their sake, not for guys sake, which I think is an important distinction. And, you know, we, we run a lot of circles in, in Christian culture. And so it, it is a really big deal, not to cause guys to stumble. And I was reading this blog post by a Christian woman who said, I refuse to alter my attire to keep guys from stumbling. I will not do it anymore. And it was such an abrasive article that made so many good points. It was just like, why can't guys just get control of themselves and not objectify women Mm -hmm. and stop looking at body parts while they're having a conversation with them. So at least if they're going to do it, they don't have to comment on it when you're walking down the street or walking down the hallway, you know? Yeah. Um, But look, we're in this right now, we're having this national conversation, right? About, uh, you know, at the, at the far end of that spectrum, Mm -hmm. um, extreme forms of sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, that, that has been going on with impunity for decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think there's a way I'm work, actually working on a book on boys now. And I, I think there's a way that, um, we think we're talking to boys and we're not. And, and that we have to, it's not, you know, it's, it isn't enough to even have these more open, honest and progressive conversations with girls. We have to That's really right. bring boys into it. Yeah. That's the weirdest yeah. thing. Once you, once you wake up and kind of realize, wait a second, all we do is talk to women and girls about the problem. That's all the instruction is in on them, and they're the right the, because the that's just, it's just natural for guys, say, right? right. Well, yeah, and it's totally natural. Well, the, need to talk to you guys because I, I feel like when I go out and speak, you know, I, I do a lot of speaking, and I'm invited all over the country and stuff. I look out in the audience, and you know, how many guys are out there? Like basically, and I think they're afraid that I'm somehow gonna. I don't know. Blame. I think that they're afraid of shame and blame. And you're going to heckle them. Would Peggy yeah, heckle the guys? I'm, well, <laughs> I'm so happy when I see men who want to think about these issues in their own lives, in their sons' lives, and in their daughters' lives. Well, if yeah. you think about yeah, totally. teenage boys, they're like, I mean, gosh, I hate they them. don't listen I hate to them. anything. Like it's almost <laughs> like if I wanted to go at, and I don't have a 15 year old boy or anything, but 15 year olds for, are just so. They're, they can't. It feel. It feels like they can't learn or listen or pay attention. And I feel like even if I wanted to communicate this notion to fifteen-year-old boys, all I could tell them it was just 
threaten the shit out of them to not ever do this to you know i can't even think of a, a like what messaging they'll possibly listen to at that age with those hormones and i'm not excusing it at all but how yeah. do we actually address like and maybe you're hitting on that a second ago when you said at least joey said to not look at their body parts and you said well at least not cat call or do these other things yeah. is there some acknowledgement or something that we that we understand that boys have some biology or something going on that's so and bad cognitive abilities at that age are so hard to control or train is there and i don't want to make any allowance for that by any yeah. stretch but how do we take that part into consideration to even communicate it well i, mean, I don't, I don't of, think boys will be boys or anything that's not what i'm saying but there's something biological there i think 15 is a hard time to step in i mm-hmm. mean you can't but it ideally you'd step in you know, from the get-go, you'd be having these conversations with your child on, on an age-appropriate level so that by the time you get to 15, they have kind of a context for mm-hmm. it. Um, but I don't know. You know, I'm talking to boys who are who are not 15, but 16, 17, 18, kind of the same thing. And some of them who have had a lot of these conversations, you know, they develop like a um, – they don't do stuff because they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. And uh-huh. that's not ideal but it's better than the alternative. Like I'd rather have them not do it because they're afraid that they'll get in trouble than do it. And some of them have really thought things through and are really trying to um, figure out what it means to be a man in a different way. Mm-hmm. And those guys are are so interesting and so um, heartfelt uh, that I, I'm just I'm really loving the conversations, honestly, that I'm having with boys. And maybe it's because I'm not their parent and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> that they can talk to me in a way that they wouldn't talk to somebody else. Mm-hmm. But yeah. they really, you know, like they really tell me stuff. They tell me about their misdeeds. They tell me about their, you know, quandaries. It's it's been pretty intense. I wonder yeah, if it's crazy. Sexual it's- shame, like, is just generational. Like, if you grew up and you were shamed about it, now we have this, you know, this phenomenon where obviously our parents don't like to talk to us about sex, not because. They not even because of anything other than it makes them uncomfortable, so the topic's yeah. avoided, and so therefore there's less just total vernacular around the topics and issues. Just the exposure to the the whole issues are kind of taboo. Is that is that a big part of it? Well, but that, I think that's still true. I mean, it was so clear to me that one of the things that I talk about is the difference between um, Holland and the U.S. And I was looking at this research on. Um, girls that were demographically similar in two different universities that they randomly chose to talk about their early sexual experience. And the Dutch girls, like everything that one would ever want those girls embody, you know, fewer pregnancies, less disease. They weren't drunk when they were, you know, engaging, they enjoyed themselves. They knew their partners really well, you know, all of the contracepted, all of this stuff, the American girls, not so much. And they, the Dutch girls, when they talked to them said that their, their parents, teachers and doctors all talk to them from a young age about sex, sexual pleasure, and the importance of a loving relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real difference was the parents. And American parents were not necessarily less likely to talk to their kids about sex, but they tended to talk only in terms of risk and danger. Mm-hmm. And Dutch parents yes. talked about balancing responsibility and joy. And Ooh, as a, the pleasure and joy. That's interesting because you're right. Even families where they make sure to talk about sex, it's like this clinical thing that's a right. like you need yeah. education, like we were going rock climbing or something. I totally so, would have said, you know, this is contraception, this is disease protection. You know, I would have talked about consent and then I would have thought I was done. Yeah. And that other conversation, you know, understanding, you know, developing a sense of sexual ethics 
that involves reciprocity, mutuality, affection, you know, all these different things that we want for our kids that aren't just about like either don't do it or if you're going to do it, make sure you're, you, you don't get pregnant or get a disease. Um, we don't really, uh, we don't have even have the language to address let's, it, I think. Peggy, let's put some flesh, pardon the pun, on some of those terms you just used, like reciprocity and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Are you saying that with my daughter, who's, I have two daughters, they're not even teenage age yet, but are you saying that I should be concerned and talk with them about, the, like, I should make it my business to hope that they get a really good and early grip on sexual pleasure and satisfaction? Yeah, I yeah, should be yeah. thinking about their pleasure and satisfaction. There's, there's, re, I, on, on my website, you can link to it. There's a resources page on the girls and sex page that mm-hmm. has some, you know, age appropriate resources across the spectrum for that. Um, but yeah, because one of the things, I mean, we're afraid, right? We're afraid that our girls will get taken advantage of. We're afraid of all kinds of things if we if we look deeper. But what we know is that the more girls understand their needs, wants, desires, and limits the more they expect out of an encounter. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was really clear to me was that girls were seeing themselves as like the providers mm-hmm. rather than participants. And that was particularly true with oral sex, which was the real um, has been the real change in the 20th century. And with our kids is that oral sex is seen as less intimate than intercourse when it goes female to male. Mm-hmm. So when it's around the receiving end. And, yeah, I, and was, I love I love your glass of water analogy. You could tell people that favorite. I was just going to get so the best. So I heard so many stories right about with girls telling, and they did it for all kinds of reasons. It was status. It was a way to um, go further without having intercourse. Mm-hmm. It was you know there was all kinds of reasons why they were doing it. But I heard it so much that I started saying to girls, you know, look, what if every time you were alone with a guy, he wanted you to get him a glass of water from the kitchen and he never offered to get you a glass of water or, or if he did, it would be like, you know, they would never accept it. These girls were, right. were bright. They were strong. They were smart. And they would laugh when I said that and say, when you put it that way and I'd say, well, why wouldn't you put it that way? Why would you be more willing to perform a non-reciprocal sex act than get a glass of water for somebody? Mm-hmm. So that for a lot of girls that I've spoken with um, since the book was published, since the TED Talk was out and everything, that was kind of an aha moment for them. Um, nobody had ever said anything like that to them before. So, and yeah, and- so now I have to tell my daughter, you make sure he goes down on you too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know. In the, the, it's, it's a, couple of things. One was I, I put it, I put the book in the framework of um, this idea of intimate justice, which is an idea I got from a um, psychologist at University of Michigan that, um, you know, sex has, you know, it doesn't, it has personal connotations, but it also has political ones. So just like who washes the dishes in your home or who vacuums the rug can mm-hmm. be a political conversation, right? And, and it asks similar questions of us, like who is entitled to engage who is entitled to enjoy? Who's the primary beneficiary? And I think those are really tough questions for a lot of adult women, to be honest. But when I was working with girls, I just kept thinking, I don't want those early sexual experiences to be something that they feel they have to get over. 
Yeah. Is there a stat that says, you know, women's first sexual experiences are, uh, you know, what percentage of them are find it to be a negative one versus a positive one? There is, and it's not on the tip of my tongue. But is it in the neighborhood of, you know, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of bad of ones, very negative sexual mm-hmm. experiences. And, and, you know, the other thing that, that I talk a lot about in thinking about this and in thinking about raising your girls is what I call the American psychological clitoridectomy. And what I mean by that is that we, you know, parents of baby boys have a tendency to name all their body parts. Like they'll at least say, here's your pee pee or something like that. But with girls, we go right from navel to knees when they're babies. And mm-hmm. we don't, you know, we have that whole middle situation you know, there's no better way to silence something than not to name it. Yeah, and in, in right. sex ed, the diagrams are... Right. <laughs> you, so the, you diagram, the boys, you know, you talk about ejaculation, you talk about erections. Right. With girls, it's like periods and unwanted pregnancy. Not the same. And that diagram that looks like the steer's head, mm-hmm. and then it goes out between the legs, so you never say vulva, you never say clitoris. Fewer than half of teenage girls ever masturbate. And then they go into a partnered encounter, and we think that somehow they will think it's about them. And be it's, able to express themselves. It's unrealistic. It, it, it's it's interesting. Some of this stuff that you're talking about is it, it does feel like uh, all all of the uh, things associated with sex are negative. Even like our contraception. You're talking about contraception. It it literally is just talked of not to enhance sex or or help you and feel more comfortable or safe. It really is like you'll mess up. You'll get a disease or get somebody pregnant. Right. Which is not to say that it isn't absolutely non-negotiable. Right. But that what we're talking about is risk and danger, risk and danger, risk and danger. And we know, you know, with kids, well, risk and danger doesn't really land all that heavily with them anyway, right? When right. we tell them that. Stuff. Not that you shouldn't, but, you know, you should tell them every single second. Yeah. Now, Peggy, then, do you think... And then a woman is, t- is talked about, too. Like, she, uh, if she's confident in her sex, then she might be called a slut. Right. Like, if she, if she actually is educated and knows what she wants, then that is looked at negatively, too, which is, where, where does that that come from when a woman is confident about her sex is that just uh males want to keep control and if she's confident they might feel emasculated or weak that's too deep for me but i i do know that one young woman that i that i spoke with had the greatest line on that she said um you know usually the opposite of a negative is a positive but when you're talking about girls and sex it's too negative so you're either a, a prude or you're a slut and you're trying yeah. to find this middle, safe middle ground that's the correct way to be. And there isn't one. It's always shifting. Yeah, I mean, don't you one. think some of this is the result of, of of biology? So, for for example, guys are, we just are more visual. So, you, you gave a stat, I think, that uh, labiaplasty is, there's like an 80% increase from 2014 to 2015. That seems to be something as a result of how visual guys are whereas that's just not how most women operate like they don't see a guy and just like oh man i would like to get him in bed right away because of his body parts there's like an emotional connection and all that and then so visual and then we have functionality like it seemed and i'm not trying to be crass but with with a guy pretty much sex the guy is going to finish like that. That basically is how sex works when the guy's done. You know, it's it's done unless he's going to be super generous. Whereas with the with the woman, it it's hit or miss, and it's way more complicated. It's a lot. It's a lot harder to see a woman come. So, aren't aren't these in play? Like just natural biology. You know, well, the labiaplasty thing, that's a direct result of porn. I mean, nobody cared about your, what your labia looked like, you know, 10 years ago. That was yeah. the thing, right? 
So that's the fact that that's had an 80% increase in just a couple of years is something to really, you know, that that's a very interesting thing. And I think about it and the whole shaving, you know, removal of pubic hair thing. That's also like this thing that's right from porn and is a really new thing. And it reminded me of like the 1920s when women's arms and legs first started to show because clothing fashions changed, that it was a way that our arms and legs were suddenly open to public scrutiny and critique. So suddenly they became a thing and we had to shave our legs Mm. and shave under our arms and all this stuff. And people didn't used to do that. It wasn't a thing. And I feel like the whole way that genital preparation for women is going now is similar in that it is a new indication that this sort of most personal part of us is open to critique, public critique and shaming and needing to be a certain way that's about how it looks to somebody else rather than how it feels to us. And that's something that we need to pause and think about. But it's interesting that, you know, the issue of like, it's easier for men to come. Well, kind of yes and no. I mean, there's research on masturbation and in masturbation, women come exactly as quickly as men do. Um, So it's kind of, and, and also in the orgasm gap, when you have a same sex encounter between two women, um, women come at the same rates as heterosexual men in straight encounters. So it's partly about the activities, our our expectations and our script and also the activities that we're engaging in. That's Um, interesting. So I think that's it. So I always say, you know, two great books for men as well as for women um, to really understand female sexuality better are um, the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, which is, I just think everybody who is a woman or has sex with a woman or ever thinks they might want to have sex with a woman needs to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you covered all the bases there. Not Peggy, quite, but pretty close. Is part of yeah. that the, the reason what, of what you just said, that, that women can that that women can achieve orgasm the same as men and speeds like that would that part of the reason that, that seems like it's not true is because of the lack of training and comfort comfort like it's a more of a cultural and a conditioned thing that is not biological is that what that points yeah, to yeah 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 it's it's and in in um uh, cultures that prioritize female orgasm whatever cultures those might be yeah. uh we know that women you know that, that that again the orgasm gap disappears so i think that it's it's about the activities we engage in, mm-hmm. the way, you know, the, the sexual script. I mean, if we're not teaching girls or boys about, you know, what a clitoris is, how it works, what yeah, a female is, what it's required. And then they go in and they're, you know, they're going straight. And like, I always, I, when you see even the most, you know, sort of innocent TV show that has sex in it, they go like from kissing to intercourse, right? That's yeah. not going to work for, you know, the stuff that you see in the movies. I, I started saying to my daughter, Boy, she appreciates this too. Um, you know, we were watching some movie that was just, you know, not, not, it was like PG rated or something. And it had that sequence in it. And I said, you know, honey, when, you know how like you see somebody in a movie and they take a cab ride and they show the person get into the cab and then they show that person get out of the cab and they don't show the whole thing in between because that would be irrelevant. It would take too long. Similarly, when they show sex in a movie, they're showing these symbols that they've developed, kissing, you know, people falling on the bed, whatever, that indicates sex has happened. But that's not actually what happens in real life. That's not how it goes. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at a, a million Hollywood movies and you think, oh, you go from kissing to intercourse, you know, that's not that's that there, there's P.S. It's from a very particular kind of, you know, male gaze point of view. Mm-hmm. And 
So I think, you know, disrupting those ideas of, of what we think sex ought to be, how we think it ought to work, what it's about, who it's for, all of that is important for our young people. That's true. I, I'm really, just, yeah, go ahead. I'm really curious what you think about this because we, we've talked about this numerous times on the show. One time with some uh, lady friends of ours that do a podcast called Free Sex Podcast. But it's this whole dichotomy of if a, if a woman said, if a, well, let's, let's go into marriage. Let's say a wife says to a husband, I just don't feel close to you. You come home from work and then you immediately get busy doing other stuff. And, you know, then, then you just go to bed. We don't talk about anything. We don't get below the surface. I need to feel connected to you. That is 100% valid. That's a very good thing to bring up. There needs to be more deeper discussion. Now, reverse that. And the guy says, hey, I just don't feel connected to you. It's like we we eat dinner, we get the kids ready for bed, and then when you go to bed, you're too tired and we never have sex. That seems to be something that is viewed as very shallow for men to say, like, oh, that, I mean, that's just, that's sex. I don't sex. think that's true. You, think that's you true? don't think, I think that. that? I think that, I mean, and I certainly have this conversation with my women friends because, I mean, that, those two scenarios um, for both men and women, yeah. you know, we never talk and we never have sex. When you're in the midst of having kids, I mean, that, you know, we all deal with that, right? right? Everybody deals with that. And I think both of those perspectives are equally valid. Sometimes having sex, even when you don't feel like it, will, you know, will will bring that intimacy and closeness back so that you get the other piece. And sometimes, have you know, trying to focus on the emotional intimacy will make people more, you know, desire, desirous and wanting to connect physically i think that they sort of feed one another but i think that both of those things i don't know i feel like a lot of my women friends you know will say oh gosh we never have sex anymore and i really feel bad about it and i know we should and we've got to figure this out and both of those things are so important to an intimate gotcha. relationship uh, i wonder too I, i've i've been kind of i i, I kind of do some I'm stuff a marriage counselor by the way Oh right. yeah, <laughs> no. It's still, it's, it's still some good advice for sure, uh, or, or a good topic to talk about. Um, I, I've wondered too: is it hard for women? Um, because okay, first of all, with all the issues with sex, it, basically when you're when a when a female's growing up, uh, it's you know protect yourself, don't give a, give yourself away. It's giving yourself away. Like when you're talking about sex and stuff like that, and then the boy is told to pursue, he has to go get her, and then it's even a little bit now, you know, an initiation into manhood. Like, well, I've had sex now, so that you know, with a lot of absentee fathers, that this is some kind of claim on your identity and your masculinity. And I've wondered, is it hard for ladies to go from basically being that? Like, it's your your whole thing isn't sex, or stay away from it, and then you even have children, and so now you are fully mother and like home leader you might be working a job as well is it hard to switch into romantic sexual mode like is it like is it is, is your husband a little bit one of your children and you're taking care of him and now you got to also have sex like is it hard to get into that romantic pursuit on both sides do you see any of that well okay so this is not really my area but i can tell you yeah. that i know there's research that shows that marital satisfaction declines with the birth of a child and with each subsequent child but then it starts to go back up again mm-hmm. once the kids get older and I've certainly seen that not, I mean, I love my husband, but I, I can, I understand that now that my daughter's a teenager, I feel like I have some, so much more space for him. Um, and there's not 
you know, if you have children and you're a woman, usually those children are like hanging off your body. You can feel like your body just like, mm-hmm. you know. I know my wife commented one time. She's just like, I nurse our babies. They're hanging all over me. And then you want me to? <laughs> yeah, it can, feel, it, can, it can feel very overwhelming um, to a female body. But, you know, I always joke that if you really want to turn your wife on, do the dishes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no better foreplay than that. Um, you know, or, or be physical in ways that don't, need to or aren't expected to or don't put pressure on leading to um to sex to just have start having the skin on skin contact or the physical contact or that sort of physical intimacy that that feels just connective and you know at some point we'll we'll go there but but um but staying connected is important and staying physically connected and staying sexually connected for a couple is super important and a lot of times when people split up they will say they haven't had sex in like, you know, five, 10 years. Wow. Gosh. Yeah. So get, so before you leave, this has been awesome. Before you uh, leave us here, give us, uh, you know, give our listeners a snapshot of what, what are some very practical things that, that, and, and we'll reduce it to fathers of daughters, but what are some very practical things that we can start doing now or things that we need to be careful of uh, avoiding in order for us to encourage positive sexuality and girls being able to view it as very pleasurable and not something that's Mm -hmm. always dangerous. You know, I think fathers play such a crucial role or, or step, you know, whoever the, the male role model is in a girl's life, because you are her first relationship with a man. Right. I mean, you are that guy. And the way that you talk to her, the way that you treat her, what you value in her, whether you're valuing her for who she is, as opposed to how she looks, um, the way that you support her, the way that you treat women in your life, adult women in your life, your wife or, or your work, you know, your coworkers, or whatever. She's watching all of that. And that's, I think, you mm-hmm. know, number thing number one. I will say one thing that I feel like I noticed between my husband and me and raising our daughter is that in terms of, and this isn't so much about sexual pleasure, but I think it relates that I don't know how, because I was raised a woman in this culture to really stand up for myself the way that I should, or to be assertive in the way that I should. And I feel like he really invested in teaching her those skills because he knew how he's a guy, he's like assertive all over the place. And I'm kind of, you know, I'll just kind of go, yeah, whatever you want, or yeah, I don't really mind. And, you know, I do the girl thing all the time. And I never learned the skills that I want my daughter to have. But my husband has some of those skills, and I really admire that he has made sure that she does too. I um, like that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And the, and then you know, in terms of this, I think that you can talk to your daughter about um, your relationships, the relationships you've had with women, what you wish you knew, wh- how you think men, boys should treat her, including you know, in the sexual realm. And sometimes that's super awkward, mm-hmm. but yeah. something that we get to pick and choose where we parent. Maybe it's a yeah. holistic thing, like you're saying. One of the principles I use in parenting is that the I, I kind of try to think of it this way, at least that the words, instructive words that I say to a four-year-old or eight-year-old or whatever, or I mean, all the way down to a one-year-old, there's almost no point in the words you say, but your right. attitudes and your actions and your genuine beliefs are the things they know and learn from, no matter what. So if I if I first fix myself here and I had to get through my thick head that I want my daughter to have satisfying, enjoyable sex and be comfortable with it and like it and just 
if I can just have that be something I actually think and care about, then probably my actions will, will reflect that. If I think that way, if I change my view of a thing, she'll probably learn from me in the more passive yeah. way, which is how people actually learn. Not, but the yeah. words that I tell them twice in a six month window that those are less and important. Being, being, con- being conscious of that, you know, the tendency to shame girls in their bodies. Mm-hmm. I think that's hard and it gets harder when your daughter's older because you see her walking out the door and you do want to throw a burqa on her, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, really, really, really do. And so trying to, you know, to, 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 to really examine that impulse while also recognizing that, you know, people live in the world and all of this, I mean, all of it's tricky. I can't tell you that it's easy. It is not easy having a teenage girl. It is hard having a teenage girl, but you just have to keep remembering that you're on her side and what you want for her over the long haul and try to, you know, keep that bigger picture in mind. My wife That's told awesome. my last thing I would say here, we'll, we'll, we'll get moving, but my wife, my uh, daughter told me, uh, that it wasn't okay. It was okay for me to have my shirt off cause I'm a boy. And we were just around the house and she told me that. And I said, why is that? She said, well, because, uh, Girls have boobs and and you don't, so you you can ha- not have your shirt on, but I had to have mine on. I was like, "Where did you hear that?" She said, "Mommy." I was like, "I said, Mom, did you tell her that?" She's like, "Well, yeah," and you know, we had to kind of think through that. But I mean, even that seems I didn't even really like hearing that. Really, like, yeah. that that's just a categorical thing imposed on her that early. I'm not mad at my wife for saying it. I get it. Like, she's probably telling her come back inside. You don't have your shirt on in the yard. I don't know. And she that was probably an easy answer, but it, I felt like. Even that just didn't disturb me, but I thought, hmm, what's the better way to, what would have been the better way to handle that? How old is your daughter? Uh, Four. Oh, I would have let her have her shirt off. Yeah, I think maybe that's right. Just don't make no distinction whatsoever, because, I mean, maybe in the future we won't have that distinction. We have the free the nipple stuff going on anyway. Maybe it's just fine. Women should be able to be topless, I guess. Like, maybe that's a better solution. I don't know about that. You know, I don't, the whole free the nipple kind of, but, but certainly at four, Mm -hmm. she's going to learn from the she's going to put the shirt on of her own accord yeah. in a year anyway. yeah i didn't think there's any yeah i agree but i don't if, think there's any need for her to draw any distinction at this point right yeah, not yet so peggy you you would fall on the side of there is something unique about female breasts and they need to be treated differently oh, i don't know i just have i i have just kind of not engaged one way gotcha. or another mm-hmm. <laughs> well i'm glad we We're, recognize that it's tricky here and you know what i mean it is it is yeah uh, it is kind of hard to think through yeah. yeah, it's hard to think through, but I also think it's interesting. I mean, just as an intellectual exercise and to examine our own assumptions and to think things through, regardless of where you end up coming out on it, you know, why not think it through? Why not think about what that would mean and why we think that way and why other cultures don't? You know, other cultures, people walk around, women walk around with mm-hmm. their shirts. So I don't know. I know it's a big thing with college students now. I I just thought of a question that, that I want to ask. Sorry that we keep piling you on questions. What what do you think about um you know because you're you're you've got a passion for seeing females you know in a healthier sexual place. What what do you think about and and we won't go into uh, like the hardcore intense stuff. But what do you think about nude posing in Playboy when it comes to the effects that has on women as individuals? Wait a second. I don't think they have nude posing in Playboy anymore, do they? That's right. They flip back that's and right. they're going back to boobs again, but, <laughs> actually. I mean, so like, you know, the, that seems so, doesn't that seem so innocent now compared to yeah. everything? I'm, I'm very concerned um, about the easy, it's, I, I think you can't even talk about that because 
I in interviewing boys, they can't remember the. A couple of them have tried to refer to that. They can't remember the name. They're like, you know, that magazine, the one that our our dads looked at. You know the mm-hmm. one I mean. And I go, yes. Playboy. Like, you don't know the word Playboy. And we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. <laughs> I think, oh God. But the I think that that um, for both boys and girls. So so, so the. The age that boys are most typically telling me that they're accessing online porn is 11. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, You'd have to explain to them what Playboy is, and they'd say, is that like Pornhub? Right. <laughs> and so they're going on Pornhub at right. 11. Yeah. They don't know why. They're not masturbating. They don't know. You know, They're not through puberty. I don't know what they're doing. But they're looking at that, and they're seeing those dynamics in, that, in those um, video clips. And I, you know, we have to ask. They're, they're like a huge guinea pig generation for the impact of pornography on their beliefs about themselves and about sexuality and, and about um, the other sex. And for girls, what I would hear is that they would say things like either that um, it, uh, you know, their bo- my boyfriend thinks I wants to know why I don't make the noises porn stars make during sex. Oh my and I, you know, I would say like, well, you know, it's a movie. And movies have to have a soundtrack or they'd be silent movies. So that's kind of why they make those noises. And maybe you're not in a movie, you know, or, or the rise of anal sex among teenagers is a direct, directly linked to the rise of online porn. That comes right out of Christianity, I believe. Is I think that's rampant because we have this technical insistence on vaginal penetration yeah. that is exactly. absurd. Yeah. And so it's all anal <laughs> and blowjobs. Right. And the other piece that, that um, uh, girls would say to me about their own uh, the way that they that they were feeling, it was a new way for them to feel inadequate about their bodies and their sexuality. Was what what boys were bringing from porn into the bedroom. So they, one girl said to me, you know, that she would be making out with a guy, and then suddenly something would switch, and she'd be out, almost like outside of her body, looking down, That's and she would good. think, what would she do in this situation? She wouldn't move. She would do this, and I I said, who's she? Who are you talking about? And she said, I have no idea. And she thought about her man. She said, I don't know, maybe it's those girls from porn. But I think, you know, that's really, I think, affecting kids. It would be ridiculous to say it doesn't have any impact. Otherwise, what's the whole purpose of advertising, right? Of yeah. course. Yeah. Repeated yeah, exposure is supposed to change us. So what does this mean? And I think it's a really big question of how we start talking to our kids about that. And, and I think that we need to talk to our kids much younger than we think we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank yeah, for you for sure. getting us a jump start on the conversation. I hope yeah. other people will let some some of it sink in there. And congratulations on Girls and Sex, a New York Times bestseller, indie bestseller, and Amazon uh, bestseller. And people can find you at PeggyOrenstein.com. That's O-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. Awesome stuff. Keep at it. You've You've actually helped us as fathers of daughters, so we appreciate it. That is the greatest compliment you could pay me. Thank you very much. Awesome. Have a good Thanks, rest of Peggy. the day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, so I got something. That was great. I'm going to give a, a little applause yeah. to Peggy there, and then I have something else exciting for us. That was good. Yeah. It's nice to talk to people that have thought some stuff through instead of just rambling on like we do. Um, I do have something exciting that I do know about that I am going to play for you guys. Okay. And, Joey, cool. I want you to uh, tell me what, what it is. See if you can identify it. Okay, Matt. Any ideas? Sounds familiar. 
ring a bell. Put you on the spot. Joey, time's up. What is that? That's the new Emory. That is the new Emory, but it's kind of funny because it's not the new new Emory. It's kind of an old new Emory. Yeah. Well, it's a it's an old Emory song on the new Emory album, which is old Emory songs. If that's not clear, then I can explain it a little further. I like it. That that sounds very unique, like to other Emory stuff. Yep. Have you heard this album yet? No, I haven't heard a lick of it. Good, good, good. We've kept yeah, it under wraps. He won't buy it. Well, you know, here's the good news, Toby. I don't want anybody to buy it. I don't care if anybody buys it. I want everybody to stream it and just go get it on Spotify. So I'll make an official announcement right now. Emory has a new album of Emory Classics uh, reimagined. So that means some of our best songs we've ever done, redone in a new way, full production album that was funded by our crowdfund for our new real new album of original songs that, that we're working on right now too but in the meantime we've completed this it's 10 songs reimagined and they come out on November 17th so it'll be on Spotify it'll be everywhere and everybody can get it listen to it bask in its glory and I'm telling you it's one of my favorite things to listen to that we've ever put out it's kick ass yeah I love it I, I love the way that this record turned out it's really neat too like going back and doing these songs again but in a, a, a totally new way literally, literally reviving them that's why we came up with the idea of revival and renewing them um, it, they just sound so good it's so it's like a fun record like because you'll be singing you you're singing along to new songs that's mm-hmm. what's so cool like you're singing along to a brand new song in a way that's just so that fun you already know. that is cool that is cool I like that. Hey, you, you sound super excited, Joey. I really appreciate it. <laughs> what, what do you got coming out, you son of a bitch? What's your record? What's uh, your book? No, I've what's, got a what's new... What's your new sermon? Let's, I've got a new... new I was just going to say, i got a new sermon coming out first Wednesday next month. It's going to be killer. And you'll just be able to recite the stuff that I'm saying because uh, it's just like the uh, two before that. So I'm really looking forward to it. But there will be new. What's the, what's the sermon title? Um, I, my wittiness is falling apart at forty years old. Well, so look, if you could get your if you could get your sermons on Spotify, I bet you could probably make a nickel a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, quick shout out to the bcclub.com if you want to go check it out. It's the bcclub.com and the the group keeps growing. I reckon because people like finding other somewhat like minded people that listen to this dumb podcast and i also reckon it's people that want more of this podcast and the bc club gets an extra episode weekly yeah seriously but you know there's also some merchandise depending on what level you buy into uh you may even get all the new bc music releases and let me give you an example of that everybody that's in the bc club i'm about to get an email going and figure out a day here in the near future i don't know when it'll be maybe even really soon so if you're in the bc club stay tuned because i'm about to get you this whole emory album that comes out november 17th way before november 17th so you'll be jamming it hell yeah you know between now and then and nobody else will be so anybody wants to join the bc club even between now and then i'll slide you this record before it's out heck yeah and i'll give you a little teaser we we it this is very preliminary but it looks like we may have a well-established author who's going to release a book on bc 
uh, words. So we're excited about that. That's something that you would get for free as well. So oh, sorry. anyway, also one more thing for all the talking I've done about the thing, I forgot to mention the name of it. It's called Revival. So Revival Ooh, is I the like name that. of the new Emory album, which is Emory Classics Reimagined. I'll shut up about that and until next time. Actually, that word revival kind of makes me depressed. It gives me those feelings. My brain starts firing chemicals and it takes me back to my childhood in which we all felt bad because I didn't know if I was really speaking in tongues and the re- the revivalist was yelling at me. So boring. I don't really, <laughs> hey, I don't really like that. Uh, I, can I can I promote something? Like Whatever I don't ever do that. But uh, un- the Unstoppable Badass Podcast has changed to Song Rescue, and we have songrescue.com. And Dev and I are going to be doing some workshops in December in Atlanta and Nashville. So you can go to songrescue.com. And come to a living room show where we'll hang out, we'll play some music, and we'll work on some songs live. What do you do? Work on their you... songs? Yep, yep. We'll work on songs and maybe try to write some stuff together or show people stuff. Or uh, It's just going to be a lot of fun. Like You can go to the website and check it out, songrescue.com. It's going to be very fun. Awesome. That does sound cool. All right, so uh, these folks joined the BC Club just recently. Uh, well, actually, I don't think we say these names uh, as they come out. But anyway, thank you, Ross Boomershine. Rob Tarver, Jonathan Cornwell, James Wells, Sean Foodie, Vincent Packer, Eric Eager, Caleb Gore, Misty Canterbury, and Mary Beth McCauley. You guys are officially blessed and highly favored. Very good. God loves you. God loves you. Toby, are you, uh, before we sign off here, is it driving you crazy being alone on the road? Uh, gr- greatest week of my life. <laughs> oh, sweet. <Sounds> nice. <laughs> it actually, I'm in the back of a Starbucks parking lot right now with my van open, laying in my little bed here that I have just doing this podcast and, and headed to, uh, Pittsburgh for true man tonight. So it is, it's actually pretty cool. I listen to podcasts and just think and have all kinds of ideas and I, it is pretty nice. So I, it makes me feel real bad having Peggy on. Like I left my wife completely with our three kids losing her mind. And then I'm going to go home and ask her to have sex with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a jerk. At least you're going to ask. That's all I can say. <laughs> True that. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.